ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Biosecurity. It's a big word and a big job. But what does it really mean? And what role do we all play in Victoria's biosecurity? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Warwick Long, host of the Country Hour. Was biosecurity seems like something that's kind of out of our hands, but it's not. Right, We all play a role and pests and diseases can threaten Victoria's agricultural sector, but it actually impacts all of us from what we pay in groceries to the holidays that we take. And it's such a word that it's easy to ignore, right? I'd love to get people on the couch, Rish, and just be like, biosecurity, what's your word association with it? Because I think people from certain communities would be like, hugely important, you know, the reason I'm here, uh, wash your boots at the airport, so all the way down to what? What does that mean? I don't even know what mm. that means. And this is something that all of us are involved in and the reason we keep certain pests and disease out of this country. Uh, for better or for worse, sometimes we're better at keeping things out of the country than others and we're, we'll be going through that over over today. But this... It's such a boring word for the importance to our nation. <laughs> but it feels like at the moment more and more of us who have probably never used the word biosecurity are using it because, and this is what we will try and talk through today, it does feel like there are a lot of pests and diseases that are knocking on Victoria's door that are either close or that are already got their foot inside our borders. And those impacts are going to be huge. We're going to work through some of the top key ones today was but how much of a concern are some of these diseases like varroa mite, like lumpy skin, that are literally knocking on our doorstep at the moment and impacting so many people's livelihoods, jobs, and then that roll-on effect to supply and demand? People don't care about this kind of stuff and still it starts to affect them, right? And we've got a lot going in our lives and in some ways you can feel a bit of sympathy for for that, Rish, but... You're right. Uh, Varroa mite, we'll be talking about that in, in a moment. But if you have a backyard veggie patch, uh, if this disease gets you know, really embedded in our community, in our state, um, all of a sudden you might be not growing the things that you're, you're used to growing year on year because of the lack of pollination from th- that you have blindly been getting from feral honeybees in, in this state for you know generations. And that could be something that that goes away and starts to affect you in a different way. Things like foot and mouth disease and so forth. We in this country are so used to getting an abundance of food at our doorstep at a price we can afford. We're a relatively rich country. We produce a lot of food here. Um, we, If we get major biosecurity breaches, that starts to affect how much is on the dinner table and how much that costs. And that could be mm. huge for us. And so that's why it's so important for all of us to work together to keep these diseases out. And if those diseases aren't kept out, we you mentioned foot and mouth disease, and I know for those, we probably won't be going into that as much today, but we have done multiple programs. <laughs> How on... many shows have you done on biosecurity, Rish, well, not, uh, over the last few years? Because well, not even foot and mouth, but that's right. a bunch of other things have all come back to this one topic, right? That, that's exactly right. It all narrows down to biosecurity and, and how we protect our industry, our jobs, our country, because our economy is reliant on the agricultural sector. And that's the other thing that as just basic consumers that we may not realise is that we all have a role to play in our biosecurity and the impacts that it has on our agricultural sector has an impact on Victoria, if not Australia's entire economy. So it's something that does impact us all. It's just trying to figure out what role we all play in this really huge picture. Oh, certainly so. Well, the the old adage, and it's a very American adage, and sometimes it grates on me, but the old idea that you have to thank a farmer three times a day because you're eating, right? It's the abundance of food and the cheapness of that food. Um, that I've never heard that saying before. Oh, it's always like you'll thank a doctor once a month, you'll thank, you know, this person, you know, another time, but you'll thank a farmer three times a day. Um, and not that the people who are producing food necessarily want to be thanked, right? But but it's just that mindset of we have we rely on the availability of food resources and our ability to grow it easily relies on us keeping 
some very scary pests and diseases out of this country. So do you think about biosecurity? Have you ever thought about it, either as a farmer or producer or maybe just simply when you're travelling overseas? Is it all of our responsibility? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt and Warwick Long with you. We are looking at biosecurity today. Big word, big job. What role do we all play? Text already was coming in on this. I've just returned uh, multiple times from overseas. There is no obvious biosecurity. It is such a shame. That's from Steph in Brunswick. Now, we discussed this when we looked at foot and mouth disease was and people that were returning from Bali and from Indonesia and all of the questions around, well, hang on a second, I've just come back from Bali and I was able to just waltz on through, grab my bags and enter out. So where does biosecurity stop and start at airports it's huge. And, and actually, comparis- comparisons with other countries, there are other countries like New Zealand, for example, where you fly into and there are huge biosecurity messages that you might see going in there. And one of the frustrations with people going to and from Australia is you used to get bombarded with these things. Remember Steve Irwin? I remember Steve Irwin telling me biosecurity matters. Don't muck with it. I can literally remember <laughs> This is why we line. don't talk about it because Steve Irwin's gone. Steve, right? Yeah. And you'd get all those signs and you still have to fill out those forms and, and you still are checking. I remember that actually. So there was a picture of him on the little yes. form, wasn't there? And next to the bin saying, chuck your fruit here, you know. Um, all of this stuff uh, is really important. We we made a big effort to tell people to try and keep things out. But now with these huge diseases on our doorstep, many question, are we doing enough? There is some effort being done, sticky mats to walk over if you're coming back from Bali, particularly at the height of concerns around foot and mouth disease. But uh, is it enough? And is it obvious enough to those travelling? Are we trading off our want to quickly get through an airport mm. uh, to uh, off on the need to educate people on why this stuff is important, why you don't want to bring in raw meat from another country, why uh, bringing fruit and vegetables, even across state borders, they will be taken off you if you are trying to go from South Australia into Western Australia or Northern Territory into Western Australia, keep things like a Queensland fruit fly out of that state. So that's how important biosecurity is to these areas. But are we making it obvious enough for people to learn that these risks are there? Danny Laferve is the CEO of the Australian Honeybee Industry. Street Council. And Danny, you met just yesterday to discuss whether or not the government should be trying to continue to eradicate varroa mite or whether it should just move on to another approach. This is something that has concerned all Australians, including those in particular from the honeybee industry. What was discussed yesterday? Was there an outcome from yesterday's meeting? Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, yeah, yesterday morning we had a uh, meeting of the technical committee that advises around the response for varroa mite. It's called the CCEPP. Uh, that group meets every time there's a new major detection or or um, something significant happens in the response to review it, look at the data, make some decisions about what happens next. Do we need to change our response tactic or do we keep ploughing forward or do we back off? So the meeting yesterday, um, we went through a lot of the data, we looked at technical feasibility inf- information, um, the 26 affected parties in that group all went around the room and discussed it um, and it was quite a divided vote. We are at a turning point perhaps in this for our response um, but there are still more information we need and, and recommendations at our meeting then get put to the national management group to make the final decision. And Danny, Varroa might probably the biggest concern for the beekeeping industry for a long time. Australia, the last major continent not to have it. It's just in one state. It's in New South Wales at the moment. This is has been a huge focus of your industry even before it got here. Can you t- give us an idea of just how big the response is? Your last year of your life in terms of yeah. trying to eradicate and control this mite so it doesn't have a greater impact on Australia? Yeah, absolutely. So the mite is a little parasitic mite that lives on the bees. It's about the size of a pinhead, very small, hitchhikes on the back of the bees. It actually sucks uh, the fat bodies out of the bees and and damages their health. It's it's very good at transmitting viruses like a mosquito, um, and it's the viruses that it transmits uh, that does the damage to the hives. It's like you say, everywhere else in the world, and it's really hurting other industries in the world. So we know that in places like America, they're losing about half their managed bee colonies annually. And the number one reason the beekeepers cite for that colony loss is varroa mite, the damage the mite's doing. So we're really lucky in Australia that we are have been free of varroa mite for, for, um, since it's been on Apis mellifera for the last 50 years. 
Um, but we always knew and we were always told it wasn't a case of if, but when we'd find it. And we have detected it before. We've had 11 detections and we've been able to keep it off our shores. Do you feel like you have, I mean, is it luck or is it support? Do you feel like you you have the support from the government? There's a really interesting text here from Tom who's in Thornbury and it says, could you imagine if the government put as much money uh, into things like biosecurity as they did into those submarines? We could completely eliminate varroa mite, fire ants, cane toads, deers, rabbits, you name it. Now that would be a good use of our money and that's from Tom. Is it from the work of the industry like yourself, Danny, and a little bit of luck, or is it a, a joint effort here? Oh, look, I don't think it's luck. It, you know, our biosecurity system in Australia is world class. You know, I've been doing presentations um, across the globe about our biosecurity system and the honeybee industry and how we've been able to keep it out for so long. So it's not good luck, but more good management that we've been able to keep out this pest for so long. Um, and we're the only country in the world that's been able to embark on an eradication program because we have such a good system, which is, like you talked about earlier, Warwick, a shared responsibility. We also have our responses with shared costs. It's not all burdened by the government. It's industries paying for this as well. Um, and so it is truly a shared responsibility between industry and government to, to eradicate. And, Danny, the, the latest step and the latest outbreaks of varroa mite came from an area in Kempsey, so up end of New South Wales, but have been found on our border in the heart of almond pollination region. 58% of Australia's almonds come from Sunraiser. It means a lot of bees are there. And there mm. are outbreaks at Euston and, and uh, Balranald, which are just near Victoria's border, where this show's broadcasting today. How likely is it yeah, that varroa close. will eventually cross the border into Victoria? Yeah, look, we, what we do know is that we haven't found any mites in Victoria and we also know that those outbreaks that we found in the almonds on the border, we know where they came from. We have a direct line of sight that they came out of the Kempsey region where there's um, a lot of mites there that we're discovering uh, and we're very confident it hasn't breached the border into Victoria. Um, we have in, each individual state has their own biosecurity um, group or department that manages it um, and Victoria are, are very keen on, on monitoring the situation and putting preventative measures in place to ensure it doesn't come across the border um, and they're also participants in the, the technical committee that advises the response and part of the national management mm. group that makes the decision so they're very much at the table as well. Danny, we all know the importance and the role that bees play in all of our lives and, and just being able to survive generally. What other flow-on impacts, you know, what other industries would be heavily impacted if varroa mite was to get into Victoria? So varroa mite, like I said, is a, is a little parasitic mite. What it does is um, knocks the colonies back. So it, it means that as beekeepers, we will have to change the way we manage our hives. We're probably enjoying at the moment less than 2% winter colony losses. Uh, and, and if you look to places like New Zealand where they've been managing it for the last 20 years, Year on year, there's been steadily seeing higher rates of colony losses. So our beekeepers are going to have to change from the, the, the way they've been managing bees, which has been relatively hands-off, to making sure that they are having their nose in their boxes a lot more, managing the colony health, um, and, and having to manage the mite numbers in those hives. Now, what impact will that have to the broader community? We know honeybees are the most common pollinator of all the pollinating species. They're not the only one, but they are the most common. A lot of our food production is based on high-density plantings in big areas, and we can't sustain natural levels of pollination to service those crops. So we need to bring managed honeybees into those spaces, like almonds, like apples, cherries. Um, there's, a, there's about 50-odd crops um, and, and we've got to bring those colonies in. Now, if we're putting pressure on our population and our hive health, um, our industry is going to have to work a lot harder to make sure that we can keep our honeybees up to service those crops. And, and Danny, that le- lies a problem too. Australia has, one, they're not native, but one of the highest populations of, of feral honeybees in the world too because we don't have varroa, right? So does that affect people's backyard uh, if it's a growing fruit and vegetables, if varroa takes a hold in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. So we can look overseas to lessons learned with varroa and, and what's happened when varroa's incursions have happened in other countries. So we know, in, in particularly the US and New Zealand, that once varroa mite establishes, 
Uh, it takes a couple or three years uh, for the feral bee populations to be decimated. So varroa mite left unchecked in a, in a European honeybee hive will end up killing that hive. As managed colonies, we can provide treatments and, and management tools to keep those varroa mite numbers down and keep those hives healthy. But the feral bees in the landscape don't have that intervention. So they're sat there vulnerable to varroa mites. So we will see those numbers um, disappear in the landscape. And it will mean that, yes, you won't have uh, the free pollination that's been occurring and that we've enjoyed for so many years. Gosh, the work that you do is so important and it impacts all of us. Danny, thanks so much. As was said, it's been 12 months of solid work onto this and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. So thank you. No worries. Thanks, Oz. Danny Lefebvre is the CEO of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council. Texts plenty on this. Was biosecurity is all of our concern. COVID, says Greg. And another, my friend was fined over $300 going to New Zealand. She'd given her child a banana on the plane and put the skin in her bag to dispose of. That's from D. Lots of people talking about New Zealand was and the level of their biosecurity. I've actually never been lucky enough to travel to New Zealand and I haven't experienced it. Yeah. But another says I've just returned, actually no, sorry, I returned from Morocco in 2009 and the woven tote, so which is a bag that I purchased at the market, was thoroughly checked for bio bugs and bug eggs. That's from Karen. So that's interesting, right? It's not just food. So those mm. woven handbags and bags and backpacks that you get, rugs. Organic materials, right? Coming back from Fiji years ago, you know when you're in the line waiting to be checked, I saw the person in front of me pull out this like woven, I suppose it would be one of those like table runner type things, right? The lady took it out of the bag, banged it on the table and all these bugs fell out of it. And you could, I was from afar, I couldn't really see the bugs, but you see them pull out the bug spray and, you know, kill it straight away and then have that a serious chat to the person who was bringing it back in. And that, that even to me as a kid who grew up on a farm, that was a real insight into where and how easy it is for something to get into um, get into the, the country just through a purchase at a market in a nice holiday moment where the last thing you're thinking about is the biosecurity of the nation. You're and you're thinking from. fruit and veg, not yeah. necessarily some of those woven goods. Another, Rish and was unfortunately a lot of people do not care about biosecurity. They only care about their immediate desires. So does biosecurity, is it something that you've thought about? Maybe you're a farmer, you're a producer, maybe just when you're booking your next holiday, when you're ticking or putting a little cross on those biosecurity checks when you're coming back into the country do you think about it on abc radio melbourne and victoria this is the conversation hour Michelle Hunt with you, Warwick Long, your co-host today, host of The Country Hour. We're talking biosecurity. What does it mean? What role do we all play in this? This was, it says, as a farmer, I was very impressed when we went to New Zealand. Every pair of shoes was scrubbed with antiseptic. Returning to Australia, we were asked which shoes we'd worn on the New Zealand farm. The officer took one look at them and waved us through. They were so lazy. It was only luck that kept us safe. That's from Lou. New Zealand biosecurity or border force or whatever they're called over there, getting getting a <laughs> This might be a good one for their training uh, training courses as well. 1300 774 Biosecurity, is it important to you? Does it need to be more important to all of us? Rick's in Geelong. Hi, Rick. Uh, g'day, how are you going? Yeah, um, good. What, there's there's um, a feral bee called the Black Russian. that um, They are very aggressive, so the beekeepers don't like them. But they actually bite the legs. They groom each other. They bite the legs off the varroa mites and then they fall to the, and they get rid of them. So there is a natural predator without having to use um, the, um, the miticides, which will then go into our food and our honey as well. Are they but, native um, or are they introduced as well, Rick? They're introduced as well. They're, but they're, they're, they're black Russian and I think there's black Italians. But I know there's black Russians and they're, they're very aggressive. So therefore the beekeepers don't like them. Yeah, um, my one worry is: Are we doing a cane tone, cane yes. beetle type thing here, or, or is that well, not concerning? Uh, well, it's not. It's not. They're they're just they're just a honeybee. They just got more aggressive traits to them. That's all they've got. And how do you but, know this, Rick? Are you somehow involved? Do you have beehives yourself? Um, I'm in the process of doing it, and I've done a lot of study about it. Uh, natural beekeeping, and um, yeah, so um, it's. Um, yeah, and uh, when I did the training, they were, they were talking about it. So I've since researched it and found right. it is true. I hadn't heard of it was, but that's not unlikely. Have you heard of it? In- <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, this is the, it's really interesting. Australia has been lucky, right? We've over a decade, I've been doing stories on Varroa, been to the port of Melbourne where they have sentinel beehives there, 
for uh, in case bees came in on ships so they can catch them, kill them, make sure they didn't bring nasty diseases in with them. That's how in the past there's been 11 instances of, of Varroa found coming to Australia that has been stopped before it could spread. This time we haven't been so lucky. Um, but, yeah, a lot of work has been done. But it means we haven't been looking at alternatives or anything mm. because we were the last place on earth that didn't have this bug. But now now we do in one state. Trevor's in Corriong. Hi, Trevor. Hi. What did you How want to say? You? Good. What did you want to say? Yeah. Um, some years ago, um, going to Tasmania to go trout fishing, um, waiting to board the Spirit, and um, in the car <laughs> there was a woman gulping down, looking very distressed. She'd been refused to go on, on the boat because she was eating a McDonald's. <laughs> and I'm assuming um, it was because there was lettuce and um, stuff in the hamburger, but um, ooh, she was gulping down. She was eating hamburger. it really quick before anybody could <laughs> No, she was anything. cold. She couldn't get on the boat while she had McDonald's. Yeah. And but I mean, down. remember what there used to be, I don't know how many of them there are now was, but even just when you're crossing borders and whatnot, there were fruit bins where you would have to yeah. So that's still there in Western Australia. They have roadblocks on the highways entering Western Australia where they take your fruit and vegetables off you if you've got any. And they'll get in your caravan, they'll have a good look around your car, they'll check the car fridge um, because the concern in Western Australia is if they get a Queensland fruit fly outbreak, that affects their markets and their ability to easily produce fruit and vegetables that they can send to different places around the world, including enjoying in their own cities and towns. So... The, these issues are still there. It's it's changed a little bit here in Victoria, but we're we're getting there. Paddy's in officer. Hi, Paddy. Hey guys. Um, my concern, uh, given the fact that we've just had the FIFA Women's World Cup in Australia, uh, we've got sporting codes, sporting uh, players travelling all around the world with sporting footwear on, uh, and given the fact that they're all playing pretty much on grass, mm-hmm. uh, my concern is that. Do they, like, look after their footwear to the point where they wash everything, clean everything? Um, like, I'm a, I'm a uh, crazy golfer, like most golfers are, <laughs> um, but there's golf tours all around the world that just, you, you don't necessarily think about washing your shoes every time you, you go out and hit the course. And this is how mites and bugs and so forth move. Paddy, that is so... So fascinating. Thank you for raising that. David Jahinki is the Vice President of the National Farmers Federation. David, as we said right at the very beginning of this program, it does feel like a, a lot of disease and pests are knocking on Victoria's door at the moment. We've sort of been talking predominantly about varroa mite, but we have lumpy skin, we have foot and mouth disease. We're talking bird flu a little later as well. Do you sort of feel like you've got your back up against the wall at the moment? Uh, hello, Rochelle. G'day, was and hello, listeners. Um... As the world gets smaller by the amount of travel that we do, and as was also noted by um, the last texter saying about sporting codes and the, the fact that we travel so much more, there is an increased risk, not only from the direct traveller, but then also the goods that we bring into mm. Australia. We import a lot of product, we export a lot of product, but by that trade occurring, that actually exposes us to more risk. And from the agricultural sector, yes, we have more threats um, coming at us. They don't necessarily have to be at our doorstep, but that's where we do focus on, especially um, with the outbreaks that we had with regards to foot and mouth in Indonesia last year. But foot and mouth is a global disease and we need to be have, take precautions, be alert, be aware of any um, goods or people who do travel just to keep good hygiene and also to acknowledge that we have got a great um, biosecurity status in Australia with um, not as many diseases as other countries. And that does mean that we have um, food that we can produce easier. It means that our food quality is higher. And the ultimate result is that not only is that good for the community because they are able to get access to food, a variety of food at a good price, but also there are some pests and diseases that are, that are out there that um, aren't directly related to agriculture, things like the fire ant, that um, if that comes down into Victoria, that will affect yeah. our way of life. A lot of people are asking about fire ants, actually, and I, I, I have to admit, I don't know much about it, but plenty. What's the... What's the concern with fire ants, David? Well, as the name suggests, they're an ant. And when they bite, it is like you're on fire. 
Um, it is in Queensland. It came in on earth-moving equipment where the equipment um, should have and could have been cleaned down a lot more and that might have um, given us more defence. And since then, we have got better protocols. But um, we have a national program to try to eradicate it. And uh, just recently, there was some major funding announcements to have people going around and actually destroying these nests. Now, the fire end itself is... Um, can get into the urban areas, so it would affect parks. It could affect your backyard. It would mean that your dogs, your, your cats, your any of your pets could also be affected, let alone the agricultural implications of it too. So it's not just agricultural diseases and pests that we're talking about when we talk biosecurity. And government funded a bit of an outbreak, a, a containment measure at the beginning, didn't they, David? Then they stopped and then it's moved south. It's at the New South Wales-Queensland border now, Rish, um, and and things are firing up again. But does that show that, I suppose, biosecurity always needs to be sexy mm. enough for government to fund? So, uh, mm. so continued efforts to control and eradicate uh, are, are ongoing? Oh, absolutely, Warwick. Look, at the end of the day, biosecurity is an absolute team sport. What's, if it gets into the country, it can easily move around. There's many of us that travel interstate to, to visit friends, family, or even just for our work, and that means that we are vectors. That means that we're ways that can move about. So if one state has got it, it means that we're very close that Victoria may, may easily get it as well. So um, as a nation... Yes, we have to be aware when we have people coming and going. We have to be aware where our containers are from. We have to be aware um, of the, the different risks that are posed to us because just because it isn't on our doorstep doesn't mean that we won't get it in the future. And when it does get that critical mass within the country, that's when it's harder to eradicate. That's when it's going to cost more money when we could have done it a lot easier and simpler when, it, when the incursion first occurred or us preventing it in the first place. David, what's it like as a farmer when you travel overseas? Like, Are you sitting on a plane shaking your head at what some people are doing or the state of their boots or how uh, thoroughly you're checked when you're going through border controls? Well, as farmers, we actually understand the risk as much as anybody, and so we're probably a little bit more diligent when we do um, make sure our boots are clean, when we fill out those declaration cards, which are really, really important, not only, once again, for agriculture, but the whole nation. But, yeah, look, I've been through plenty of different airports in my time, and you do both shake your head at um, the blasé nature of um, travellers. Uh, back when we used to travel when they uh, unloaded cans of aerosol into the planes, it was a little bit more in your face and people probably took a little bit more notice. But um, over time, it does ebb and flow. What, we, what this, I guess, the message is today is that biosecurity affects everybody. It's the responsibility of everybody and it will affect... Um, the consequences will affect everyone as well. And it may be direct by the way you live, the, 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 the product that you can choose, but ultimately um, it is going to have an effect on cost of living. It's got to be paid for yeah. by somebody if we do have incursions. And, um, and it could even come to the extent where we're talking about those sporting vectors as well. Does it mean that we will have to um, have different ways that we play our sport? There's a lot of things in this space, but the most important thing is that we have to understand that it's important for everyone to participate in this conversation. Really good point, David. Thank you. David Jahinke, Vice President of the National Farmers Federation. And was with all of the texts that are coming in, it just shows you how broad this is. Okay, here's just a, a few of them. <laughs> the majority of the, uh, of the noxious weeds in the Australian snowfields originate from North America and generally a result of dirty ski boots. Oh. Another that says I go to India on a regular basis and you're often vigorously hassled to buy peacock feathers. But the moment you say you're Australian, they walk away. Even the locals in India know about our biosecurity. That's from Kate. And then Jerry says, my girlfriend bought me a gift of orchard uh, orchids, I should say, from Singapore to Melbourne. They were well and truly scrutinised and sprayed so that they were safe to bring in. And then Jennifer, who says, I casually work at Station Pier during the cruising season. I'm often required to complete the biosecurity training each year. This has really raised my awareness of the importance of protecting ourselves at every single point. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and, and it is. It's it's a good system about minimising the risk of bringing things into the country. And we should say at this point anyway, and as we're about to move on as well, Rochelle, we can't keep everything out, right? Uh, there's a little bug called Russian wheat aphid that Australians have had to be dealing with for like five or, uh, five or so years, and that involves extra sprays on crops and so forth to try and stop this aphid from eating all the crop. That flew here, apparently, yeah. in, in winds. So we can't keep 
everything out. It's about minimising what we can keep out and trying to keep hold of the particularly nasty things. And in just a tick, we'll look at the role of climate change. I mean, you mentioned yeah. wind there. We have extreme weather conditions now. So some of this will be out of our hands. Jess is in Harcourt. Morning, Jess. Uh, good morning. How are you going? Really good. What did you want to say? Yeah, I just wanted to, to add a comment about the um, biosecurity, which is really important. But I wondered if anyone out there has heard of a mushroom that can improve the bee's immunity. No. Uh, there's a, um, a researcher or mycologist um, that I've been following for a few years called Paul Stamens um, and another fellow. Um, they've actually been working on a mushroom that improves the bee's immunity against varroa mite. So it doesn't kill the varroa mite, it just improves the bee's immunity. Um, there's, you can Google it, but um, there's a site called Bee Mushroomed, um, and they've actually been tracking it through uh, Bluetooth houses. It's a little bit spacey and a little bit out there, but um, they've actually... <laughs> What's interesting, though, Jess, is it's similar yeah. to, I guess, that other bee, even though it's an introduced bee, but looking at relatively natural ways to fight yeah. off diseases right. and things like for mite. Jess, can I ask, yeah. when you travel and when you have to fill out your declaration form and when you're crossing borders and whatnot, do you pay attention? Of course, yes. Yeah, I do. It's so important, um, yeah, keeping diseases out of the country, um, yeah, for a, a food bowl, simply. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was interesting how the bee's immunity and our immunity is similar. Mushrooms help us too. And so I thought, well, I'll just call and see if anyone out there has heard oh, of that. Well, you never know who's listening and the information that people have. This, why don't we have controls on all Victorian borders? It's a small cost compared to the disease outbreak. Our number's 1300 774. ABC Listen. The police say they can't be sure the two fires are linked. A number of anti-Asian posters have been... admit the coincidence is highly suspicious. I was only eight when my family was targeted as part of a series of terror attacks. Join Crispy and Chan on this deeply personal investigation. I need to know exactly how it happened and what they'd say now if I found them. Firebomb, the new series of the Unravel True Crime podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Biosecurity today on the Conversation Hour. Biosecurity and its importance to you. It's a word... It's a word that you probably mightn't take much notice of, but as we're discovering today, hugely important to our state, hugely important to our way of life, whether it be in your backyard veggie patch or your kids being bitten by an ant that you didn't know existed or the food you eat. It can affect you in so many ways, and we're trying to discover today, get together uh, how best we go about strengthening biosecurity, particularly for this state, but also for the nation. Dr Paul DeBarrow is the Senior Pre Principal Research Scientist at the CSIRO, and Paul... Well, we were just talking before about extreme weather conditions and wind and how some disease and pests can come into our state of Victoria. What role d does climate change come when, it, when we talk about pests and disease and how loose our biosecurity systems may or may not be? Well, I suppose to start off with, you have to remember that most pests and diseases are absolutely tied to uh, climate, climatic suitability. There are two, one of the key factors in determining whether or not a pest will establish in Australia is whether or not we have climates in Australia that are suitable. Mm. So it's an absolute fundamental. And of course, when you're talking about sort of climatic suitability, that's going to change as climates change. And that's likely to influence the distribution. So a pest that, for example, may not have been able to occur, say, down in southern Australia, as it gets warmer, will be able to move further south. And we've seen this happen in Australia already. We've seen it happen in Europe, where the, the distributions of known uh, pests and diseases are moving uh, to where it gets warmer and maybe away from where it gets cooler or might be vice versa. But it absolutely affects the uh, uh, the distribution and then the impact. So as climate uh, might get more suitable in particular areas, uh, so the abundance. And we saw that, for example, with uh, you know the two uh, La Ninas. Uh, 
uh, allowing mosquito numbers in southern Australia to increase substantially, and that was one of probably the key factors associated with the Japanese encephalitis and Murray Valley encephalitis. Yeah, we haven't even mentioned that one. (laughs) There's another one that we can add to our list. So that's a clear example of how uh, climate events... Uh, influence um, disease outbreaks, but so it, it, it ha- happens all the time. Is climate change rewriting the map then on how far and wide certain diseases and pests can spread? Absolutely. Uh, as climate changes, so the distribution of pests and disease changes because they're, they're absolutely tied to each other. Uh, there's a model uh, program that the CSIRO uh, developed called Climate Climax, and basically the two key factors in that are how temperature and how moisture uh, change over geographic space and over time. And that absolutely influences how species mm-hmm. uh, can survive in particular areas, their abundance, and abundance is often then tied to impact. And so the more of them you have, usually the worse the problem gets. Likewise, temperatures can get high and that can actually reduce numbers. So, That's for example, what I was thinking, yeah. Sometimes things that would normally once survive here maybe now can't or vice versa or, or they they can't survive in certain areas and move to areas where they can survive uh, so again climate acts as a sort of a push and a pull and so for example when i was doing my phd i worked on an aphid in south australia which if you had a uh, one day over 36 degrees in the last two weeks of march you were not likely to have an outbreak later that year because the high temperatures would have killed the aphids in the pastures where they built up. But if you had a mild uh, march, you're almost certainly going to get an outbreak. And that's just a simple example. There's a text here that says biosecurity is not just about bugs and diseases. It's important for primary industries, but also critical to prevent foreign plants and animals being introduced into our country and becoming invasive weeds and pests. These displace native plant and animal species. They upset our native ecosystem and our food chains, and they threaten our environment and our native species. That's from Leon Molden, and he's bang on, Paul, isn't he? He's, he's right. Oh, there's there's no doubt that if you bring in new species, those species have a chance to establish, and they may well, if they're well suited, uh, outcompete species that are already there. Doesn't always happen, and not every single pest that arrives in Australia uh, establishes and has an impact. There are many that come in and do little or nothing, or don't even even survive. But the general principle is, is that if something is quite a problem in other parts of the world. If it comes to Australia and there's a suitable climate or the hosts are there, etc., the chances are it could be a problem here. And there's the borders we can protect or try our best to protect, isn't there, Dr Paul DeBarra? But there's also uh, things that you, you can't control, and I was mentioning that earlier, like the oceans, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, Twiggy Forest's investment in Carnarvon's got to pull out all their oysters right now uh, because of a parasite that's been found. We've got viral ganglioneuritis. That's the um, uh, abalone herpes, Rochelle, I love that's how that found. just rolls off your tongue, was <laughs> yeah, Portland. But white spots off the New South Wales coast, these are things that can spread in oceans that we don't have a lot of control of, do we? Well, although the white spot one's a curious one as to how it actually got here. Did it actually, was it, did it actually naturally spread here or was there some other human uh, intervention that uh, facilitated that? But the general principle is, is that while we're an island, uh, we're not, uh, that in itself doesn't uh, prevent things from getting here naturally. And I know of a mosquito that occurs up in uh, uh, northwestern Australia, which almost certainly blew in from um, Indonesia. Uh, and we, So that there's an example and it established here. Stay with us. Dr Paul DeBarrow is with you, Senior Principal Research Scientist from the CSIRO. But Mick's in South Gippsland. Morning, Nick. Uh, morning, Mick, apologies. What, what, did, what have you observed? Um, so I, I've, I'm out on paddocks a lot of the time doing, uh, so we, we do a lot of agricultural drone work, which, uh, you know, we get to see, see plant health from the air and that type of thing. But you've obviously got to get your boots dirty to go out and fly these things. And um, I constantly get rid by mates about just how clean my boots are. Um, <laughs> and then when you explain to them the idea of, uh, you know, that, that we put them through citric baths and we do all this stuff for farm biosecurity just to make sure that our, our primary producers are, are safe, 
um, it starts a different conversation and it's quite interesting, yeah. What what are you looking for when you're doing this work, Mick? Oh, yeah, yeah, so there's a couple of things, Rochelle. So um, we actually use um, multispectral um, photography and imagery to look at plant health. So we're looking at infrared, at chlorophyll. Um, so obviously chlorophyll has a connection between plant health and we're able to look at individual crops and... and um, down the track, the idea is that it automates some of the processes of, of treating plants so that we can look for the ones that are crook in a paddock and only target those and, and then not necessarily target the entire paddock. Um, it's amazing stuff. It really is. And, and uh, Mick, you're, yeah. you're basically telling us we need to make clean boots cool again, right? We need everybody yeah. confident yeah, to have clean you boots. Got, yeah, you've got to embrace it, you know. And, it's, um, and, you know, just even in having that conversation around why, I think yes. it's really important. And particularly in some of these areas where farmers are doing awesome stuff with like revegetating and things like that, where we want to try and give those plants that we're that we're kind of putting back into the system the best possible chance. And so if we're if we're putting bringing um you know sort of uh, alien plants in as we're walking in there, then that's you know that's not good. So certainly see, not. Hey Mick, that is brilliant. Thank you so much for that information and and providing it as well. And I think politicians dressing for the country for the first time everywhere are thanking you, Mick, because they've got the cleanest boots I've ever seen. And now say. I'll never rip them again, yes. Rochelle, because they're practicing good biosecurity. I was going to say, I don't think I've ever seen dirty politicians, um, <laughs> politicians' boots. And Mick, thank you. I am constantly in awe of some of the incredible jobs that people have. Like, who Ag- drone pilot thought that someone was an ag drone pilot to look at plant health. Just finally, Dr. Paul DeBarrow, we are looking at a warm summer. We know that. That's on the cards at the moment. In terms of our biosecurity risks and some of the disease and pests that may be on our doorstep at the moment, what does this summer hold for you? What what concerns do you have? Uh, well, it's always really hard to predict, but what I can what I could suggest is that we probably won't have major mosquito problems this year because it's going to be a heck of a lot drier. So that's the flip side is that uh, some threats may actually reduce because we're going to have most likely a hot, dry um, summer. Uh, uh, some of our uh, southern aphid pests will probably not be as bad this year because because of that. So there are a range of things you have to think about. And so I can't really say that, oh, this year, because it's going to be hot and dry, that these are the things particularly I'm concerned about uh, in terms of entering Australia, because the factors that influence whether something enters Australia is often not so much the climate that we have here, but the factors that are actually bringing it to Australia. And if it comes into the right part in Australia, there's likely to be a climate that will uh, enable it to establish and so it's uh, not as easy to say that there's, I've got a hit list of things that no. says, oh, this year it's going to be a bad year. Dr. Paul DeBarra, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining us on the program. That's okay. Happy to, to be here. Thank you. Senior Principal Research Scientist at the CSIRO. Really interesting to hear about that. And it's almost relieving to hear it could be a good mosquito year as well. It's amazing how much the the climate conditions can have an impact year to year on what we experience. Herbie's in Northcote. Morning, Herbie. Yeah, good morning. Uh, interesting topic. Um, I travel now and then to Europe, and when you come into the country, I think in terms of biosecurity, you're way too polite. I think you need to be blunt. So who's so too Australia? Pol- Australia is too polite. Uh, too polite? Is that what you say? Still too polite. Yes, way too polite. So you I think we need to be stricter, Herbie? Much stricter because. If you get it wrong, the repercussions are enormous. So consequently, the repercussions for those people uh, bringing stuff in, saying, oh, yeah, it doesn't apply to me. It should be, the repercussions should be enormous. So yeah. other, otherwise, people will keep bringing in, you know, pork, whatever it is, from which country, uh, and thinking, oh, yeah, I can do it. Um, I think it's important that we are blunter, unfortunately. There's a lot, quite a few people talking about we just actually need better education here, Herbie, and I think that's a part of it too in that 
How serious do you take those declarations when you're reading through it and you've had a long-haul flight and you just want to get the hell off that plane because you've got a numb bum and you're hungry and you want to get home and get back to your own been crying the whole flight home. That's You know, there's so many things going on in your life. But, yeah, just in terms of raising it as an importance and maybe being blunter does put it in people's face a little bit more. I often wonder the people people who watch um, Border Security or whatever that show's called when you know you see meat and things being taken off people all the time if that actually is a good advertisement for australian biosecurity or if it if it doesn't help i'm, I'm not sure <laughs> strangely my 10 year old daughter loves that show <laughs> and we've never watched it ever and she's like yes border security's on i'm like all right whatever whatever gets you through dr michelle villa is an avian influencer expert she's a senior research fellow at the center for pathogen genomics, I can't even say it, let alone do it, Michelle from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. When we talk about different types of viruses and pests that may come in, when we talk about poultry in particular, people would know it as bird flu, what does the the last 12 months look like and what does the next 12 months look like, do you believe, when it comes to things like bird flu? Yeah, so we are currently in the middle of a bird flu panzoothic, which is just the word that we use for animals. Essentially, we're in the middle of a bird flu pandemic. So bird flu is circulating in all parts of the world except for Australia and Antarctica. Um, And it is quite catastrophic. Um, Hundreds of millions of birds have died in the last year. Um, And so we are actually quite concerned that this virus may emerge in Australia. And if it does, there are quite big implications for that. Does the average person know that? Like what you just said there, Michelle, is quite confronting that we're in the middle of a pandemic when it comes to a bird flu or to avian influenza. Does the average person in Australia and Victoria know that, do you think? Yeah, um, you know, I'm not so sure. Um, It certainly is in the global media quite a lot because the average person in most parts of the world is often confronted by lots and lots of dead birds on beaches and in national parks. But because this virus is not here, I don't think that the average person is, is quite as aware because it's really not being highlighted in the Australian media at all. And this is not a disease we can keep out. Birds migrate here, Mm. don't they? Uh, So is it thought during the next migration season that this disease will make its way here? Yeah, so we're certainly very concerned that it could arrive with migratory birds this year. So spring is the period we've highlighted as the highest risk for a virus introduction. And so, of course, we have many bird species here in Australia that breed in the Northern Hemisphere in places like Siberia and even visit Alaska. And then they return to Australia every spring to spend the nice summer here with us before they return north. And so there's always the risk that one bird brings this virus with them on their migration and introduces the virus to Australia. When we talk about responses, the idea of a global response and working globally, is that easier said than done? Michelle, how does it work? It certainly is a really big challenge, but there are many um, global networks that are in place. So, for example, this virus is something that we call as notifiable. So every time it's detected, it's actually reported to a global network called the World Organization for Animal Health. You can go to their webpage and you can see all the places in the world where this virus is active. There are also many global consultations. So we just recently had one run by the Food and Agriculture Organization where experts came together to um, discuss all the possible things that we could do to try to stop this virus. Um, And so there certainly is a really big initiative to work together because this virus, as it's moved by migratory birds, is transcending national boundaries. And it's been here before. If people don't think it it affects us in Victoria because we're at the bottom of the country, in 2020 and 2021, something like half a million birds had to be mm. killed in the agriculture sector to try and control a bird flu outbreak. So if it comes back again, Victoria, is Victoria in the firing line? So, yeah, so the bird flu outbreak that we had in Victoria in 2020, and you're correct, it resulted in the destruction of about half a million birds. That was actually a homegrown strain of bird flu. That was one that came from wild birds and changed in poultry. The variant that's circulating in the rest of the world is much, much more aggressive than the virus that we had emerge here in Victoria, and is much more aggressive than any virus Australia has seen in the past. So if it enters Australia, um, I think that every state is certainly in the firing line because we know that birds travel all over the country. It's not that migratory birds understand state lines and just stay 
stay out of Victoria. Which you is know, what makes it birds... trickier, Michelle, isn't it? When we talk about some of the others, we can talk about what we can do, you know, as human beings to try and stop, to try and protect our state, you know, our livelihoods, our agricultural sector. But when it comes to birds, can we do anything? Well, look, bird flu is a virus that's found both in wild birds and in poultry. And what we're seeing is that sometimes wild birds bring it in and introduce it to poultry. And in poultry, it amplifies a lot and gets back into wild birds. So as humans, a really important step that we can take is strong biosecurity, preventing this virus from entering poultry industry and also preventing it from leaving the poultry industry. So strong biosecurity is very, very important. The other thing is backyard chickens. Um, you know, if this virus is being introduced by migratory birds, backyard chickens certainly can be exposed. And in the rest of the world, we've often seen big outbreaks in backyard chickens before it enters big poultry production. So having strong biosecurity and rules around how we deal with backyard chicken is also really important. Absolutely. So there are things that we can do for sure. And that's something that's been growing you know, more and more people. Not I, however, but some people having backyard chickens. Michelle, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. And the work that you do as well. It's incredible. Dr. Michelle Villa there. She's a Senior Research Fellow for the Centre of Genomics at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. We said at the top of the program was that we uh, have covered everything from foot and mouth disease, bird flu, Mm. we have. So if we haven't gone in depth into some of these topics and you want to know more about it, then Go to the ABC Listen app, subscribe to the Conversation Hour. You can download some of those shows. The Conversation Hour is a podcast. Yeah, and while you're listening to the Conversation Hour podcast, there's a country, Victorian Country Actually, Hour podcast. podcast too. You might, might as well just subscribe to both. <laughs> uh, then you, there's two hours of hour-long radio shows you can enjoy, uh, which is a ripper. But today, we'll continue that discussion on Varroa Mite that you had. We're going to be speaking to beekeepers who are allowed to move their bees out of the zones where the latest outbreak is. There's a lot of controversy around that. They were running out of food in the almond pollination areas because we're at the end of almond pollination. So bee health was a real concern, but uh, we will Mm. speak to those beekeepers about moving to other areas and how they feel about this outbreak and the management of it it today. And you're going to meet a bloke who's been in the scallop industry for like six decades. Oh, wow. Six decades. Has a lot of thoughts on where the industry is going, where it's come from, and it is an absolute delight. So, you know, bees, uh, cattle prices, scallops. That's on your menu today for the country. It should be a good one. And a big thanks to Cody Fowler too today for assisting in producing today's program. Well done. My name's Rochelle Hunt. Thanks so much for listening this week. Have a wonderful weekend. Be safe and we'll speak soon.